You're listening to a bonus episode of The Dairy Age, featuring Chagisk's weekly Let's Talk Dairy webinar series, which is also available as a podcast. Good morning, folks. As always, you're welcome to this week's Let's Talk Dairy webinar. Michael Deneen, Senior Research Officer in Moor Park, is going to give us maybe an overview of the National Winter Milk um, Open Day took place in Johnstown Castle last week, so some of the main take-home messages. Mike, we had a... We had a very successful in terms of National Winter Milk Open Day last week in Johnstown Castle. Um, big attendance, but I suppose what we wanted to do, <clears throat> given the geography in terms of it can be it can be a significant journey and the weather was good. And I know there was plenty of messages in terms of apologies that people that maybe couldn't make it. Um, just have a conversation for the next 10 or 15 minutes, Mike, in terms of maybe some of the main key messages key discussion points on the day in terms of what where they were at. So I suppose, firstly, thanks for coming on to me. And and you're obviously in terms of the, the, the main principal research officer down there, Mike, in terms of heading up the research. Johnstown Castle is the main hub for that winter milk research. And, and that's kind of where we started the day. We, we'll maybe run through the five stops, Mike, but um, David Wall would have opened up with that and maybe just give us a feel in terms of maybe the history of Johnstown Castle and what has been done there over the last few years. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, thanks for having me on, James. Um, and good morning, everyone. So, yeah, no, I'm very fortunate that I get to team up with um, the likes of Aidan Lawless and the team down in Johnstown Castle and it's very enjoyable. Um, they're really driving on uh, operations down there and it is, a, it is a great opportunity so delighted to link up with yourself and Joe Patton as well and, and the rest of the team for the for the open day so uh, really enjoyed it um, so yeah the first board uh, David Wall enterprise leader in Johnstown Castle he opened it up for us so he welcomed the cohort of farmers um, and he kind of got into the, the history of, of John's, the dairy herd in the Johnstown Castle so in 2003 the herd would have been set up and uh, it was set up to be the main base for winter milk research in, in Chagas. And, and the thought process was to have it as the center for research training and dissemination. So it's a great asset to have down there uh, and help drive things forward for the winter milk cohort. Um, David touched on past research. Um, so there'll be a history down there of a number of people uh, supporting Aidan and, and the team down there in terms of research. So there'll be John Murphy, Patrick French would have been there for a time. And then Joe Patton would have led it from a research perspective since 2009. Um, so Joe uh, did a great job down there in fairness to him. They would have got into things like um, grazing strategies for autumn and, and spring winter milk herds. So um, kind of covers in the autumn would have been the big one. Uh, that fresh cow getting into the higher covers, what was optimal for her. Uh, they would have went after EBI and cow type uh, and a lot mm. of very good and interesting work out of that. Uh, they were touched on feed to yield systems. So comparing feed to yield to, to flat rate. And then more recently, they would have got into kind of calving patterns. Uh, what's the optimal amount of cows to calve in the autumn in, in split herds and, and how that affects the financials and, and the premiums involved there as well. So Dave gave a really nice background there and welcomed everyone to, to the day. And we took off up through the fields then to, to get to the technical boards. So we went for a walk then as, as such. And I suppose <clears throat> tease people in in terms of the first stop really was around Johnstown Castle, the winter milk herds. Um, Aidan Lawless, farm manager, would have presented that. I suppose, what was the main points from that to be taken, I suppose, from the performance of the Johnstown Castle? And maybe can you just outline that for our listeners, Mike, in terms of in terms of where it's actually at? 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, yeah, the first technical board, um, it was focusing on the herd and the cow type, and Aiden would have uh, delivered that, um, Aiden being the farm manager. And then the second part of that board was kind of pasture management and maximizing grass in the winter milk cow's diet. And, and Vincent Tracy, uh, a Chagas advisor in Mead, with a, a large cohort of winter milk producers, delivered that board and, and did a great job on it. So a, a nice thing too we had in the background was the yearling heifers were there on show as well. So uh, Aiden talked through some of the management around those animals as well and, and uh, we had some information on, on how they're doing. Um, so the main takeaways from Aiden's board with the herd profile, he would have talked through the EBI and that we're striving for a very high EBI cow down there um, and that there's no differentiation between the autumn calving and spring calving. They're very similar genetically. They're a high EBI cow, high milk and fertility sub-index, uh, driving for high milk components to deliver our high milk solids, um, and then a, a really functional cow so that we can uh, maximize the pasture utilization for the majority of her lactation once she gets to grass there um, in, in our, uh, late January, early February. Um, so the, the herd will be over 200 EBI, about 208 on average in the, in the July run. Um, and then in terms of calving, um, and fertility. So uh, Aiden runs uh, two 10-week compact calving periods, one in the spring and one in the autumn. Um, the cows are actually calving now at the moment. The first three of them just calved down there for the autumn herd. And uh, that begins around the 12th to the 15th of September. And a mean calving date would be the 9th of October down there typically. Um, so cows will be calving September, October, November, uh, and a nice compact period. Uh, in terms of fertility, so we pulled together for the day, we pulled together uh, results over the past five years. Uh, pregnancy rate, the first service for the autumn herd was about 57%. Uh, so target there of around 60. So we're, we're happy enough with that one. Six-week calving rate around 78%. Um, and a 10-week empty rate of, of 13%. So a little high on our, our empty rate. I suppose it is a 10-week, important to state that. But we'll, we'd like to pull that down a little bit. And it's variable year to year. Um, mm. uh, some years are better than others. But 13 is an average. You'd be comfortable enough. Um, but we'd definitely uh, uh, strive to get it down. And then calving interval, a uh, uh, very important one in winter milk systems, uh, calving interval of, of 370 days. And we put big emphasis on that to have uh, no recycled cows between the, the spring and the autumn. So that can be a challenging one out on farm. It's There's an emotional part of it, of, of keeping certain cows, but we have a strict policy of no recycling down in, in, in Johnstown. So really, I suppose, what I'm getting there is high UBI genetics. Cows are the same for both the autumn and the spring. And it's really about delivering in terms of fertility performance and then having cows that are capable of producing high High levels of milk solids. What sort of performance was the herd or has the herd been um, delivering over the last number of years? Yeah, so so you're dead right. Kind of set the basics, you know, get that high EBI cow, good fertility performance. It's across all systems, it's critical to hit those. Mm. Um, so cumulative performance. So we pulled it again over the last four to five years. Um, on average, the autumn herd uh, produced 7,540 kilos of milk a fat percent of 4.52 and a protein percent of 3.66. So fairly good um, milk composition there. And that delivers uh, 616 kilos of milk solids on average um, for those autumn calving cows. And their body weight is 604. Um, and in terms of cumulative concentrate fed, it hits around 1.6 ton um, 
across the whole lactation. So about a thousand of that, nine hundred to a thousand coming during the winter feeding period, the kind of uh, hundred to hundred day period, um, and then six hundred during the grazing season. So we've uh, tried to get good response to concentrate when we're on those ensiled forages. Uh, but once they go to grass, it's a uh, lean. We try to uh, once we have the supply of high quality grass, we're, we're pulling back on the concentrate um, and really focusing on maximizing grass in the diet, be it a spring or an autumn cow. Once we have that supply of high quality grass, we utilize it. And that's really creeping into, I suppose, the second half of the board there in terms of um, concentrate uses, as you said, once they get to grass, ultimately in terms of <clears throat> you're reducing concentrate down to a couple of kilos um, probably after that spring period. And that's where a lot of the mismanagement in terms of concentrates probably is yeah. used on, on winter milk farms. Yeah. Vincent's message is then, um, I suppose. Yeah. So and a lot of the time it's different, you know, winter milk systems are different or such. Is it, is it that different at all? I suppose from a, from a grassland to pasture management point of view. Yeah. So Vincent did a great job and I think the board worked out lovely. So we kind of set it out. We did spring, summer, autumn, um, and we looked at the kind of grazing management practices around there. And, and I mentioned Joe and Aidan would have worked hard on that in, in past years. So a nice solid foundation. And when we really went through it, spring and summer are essentially the same as a spring calving herd. So um, in terms of turnout, uh, when we're planning our, our indoor feeding experiments, we have to be conscious that Aidan, if the weather comes in late January, cows are going out. Um, so there's no such thing as holding them back and getting them into March to, to keep the amount of in-soil forage in the diet. It's once the grass is there and, and the weather and soil conditions allow, cows are, are, are heading out. Um, Aiden will utilize uh, two to three hour grazing bouts if it's inclement weather. Um, he'll get the kind of on-off grazing going there. And then in terms of targets, it's like your spring herd. We'll be trying to get 33% by the end of February, 66 by by Paddy's Day, and then early April for, for second rotation. And then again, Aiden be walking uh, once a week in the spring period. And based on grass supply, he'd be pulling back on the winter forages um, and getting them out of the, of the diet at the, at the earliest um, possibility. Onto the summer then, uh, very similar. We use the the, the wedge, the, the summer grazing targets, keeping uh, nice pre-grazing yields. Um, and the only slight difference maybe is that the first cut silage, we really focus on getting that in the first half of May as, as soon as we can. And we'd be aiming for over 74 DMD silage for those winter milk animals. So we're really focusing on, on getting that high quality silage to be able to pull back on the concentrate then during the, the housing period. Um, the autumn comes along then. That's the kind of slightly different uh, to grazing management to, to the spring one. So um, essentially, um, Aiden and the team, they won't build the farm cover as high as maybe in, in spring situations. So we have that fresh cow. Um, we're trying to get her to utilize um, the grass well. So we'll keep max pre-grazing yield around 1800. And uh, peak average farm cover, we try to keep it around 950. So that'll be more challenging this year with the good growth. Um, but that's the kind of targets we'd, we'd aim for. Um, we try to have 75% of the area closed by early November. And then we try to keep in soil forages out of the diet until the start of November. So we try to maximize again grass in the diet with a slightly higher average farm cover of 650 being the target, just so we have slightly more supply of, of pasture in the spring when we have that big demand coming along with the mid-lactation cows at, at, at that stage. So, yep. yeah. yeah. So really, I think that's the important point from that board, Mike, ultimately is that there's 
still a massive focus from a feed budget perspective on forage utilized, forage quality, um, grass for as long a period as possible, and then we're not that it's that it's high quality, high quality and soil silage. Definitely, 100% critical. Like we, it's our best resource there, our, our high-quality pasture. So that's getting into the diet as much as possible. Yeah. Very good. And then maybe stop two and three were, were more related to the research that has been carried out over the last couple of years. So in terms of um, our second stop, really looking at, I suppose, um, protein sources within our concentrate and um, maybe the importance of soy and what it actually does and is there alternatives there, Mike? So maybe just give us a brief kind of rundown in terms of um, in terms of the work and I suppose in terms of maybe then uh, you'll point out the work, the further work that needs to be done as well. Yeah, so that was the third technical board. So Neil Maher, he's a PhD student um, focusing on winter milk systems. Um, so himself and myself, presented that board and it was kind of trying to keep the momentum going um, as Joe was transitioning out of, of the role down there. Uh, we tried to carry on uh, the flag there and, and keep things going um, with Aiden and the team. So the, the kind of context around that work or the, the protein source work is that there's um, there's incentive and policy coming to try and um, reduce the amount of imported feeds into our systems. So primarily soybean meal. Um, there's lots of policy like the 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 climate action plan, um, and and the idea around it, I suppose, is that there's a number of concerns with those imported ingredients. There's obviously the carbon footprint to, to get them here. They're typically coming from deforested land. There's price volatility with them, and we're kind of exposed to that. There's geopolitical disruptions. So unfortunately, we're seeing that in the news with, with the war in Ukraine. And there's then the overall uh, product marketability, kind of our homegrown Irish origin green um, credentials. So we set up uh, experiments to try to see if we replace these imported feeds with homegrown feeds, how does it affect the performance of, of winter milk cows? Um, and overall, when we've tried to replace them, we typically see during that indoor feeding period when the cows are on insoiled forages, we see about a 15 to 20 kilo of milk size reduction over the kind of eight to 10 week period. So about 0.2 kilos of milk size per day. So um, we, we ran two years, three years of that uh, kind of research. Um, and it, we, we ran it where there was no maize silage, and then we ran it again where we just isolated the, the protein ingredients, switching soya and maize distillers for, for field beans and, and rapeseed meal, and we saw consistent reductions in performance when it was making up a considerable amount of the diet. So um, there's lots of literature out there to support that, that soya is very rich in terms of its amino acid profile and, and metabolizable protein, um, field beans are quite degradable in the rumen. So our challenge now is to try overcome that reduction in performance and see, can we bridge the gap and, and, and be able to utilize these ingredients in our diets without losing performance? So um, there's place, there's technologies like rumen protected amino acids. Uh, we could process the field beans potentially. There's alternative ingredients like, like lupins and, and peas. And then, of course, there's the base forage. So um, looking at uh, silage uh, digestibility and, and alternative forage uh, sources like red clover. So important point to emphasize there, I suppose, is we really pushed it to its max. We tried replacing all the soya. 
um, uh, with these homegrown um, sources. So currently in the industry, that wouldn't be what you'd be purchasing. So the reduction in performance is, is very unlikely to be as much as we're seeing here in, in the research. And the other point is that there's very good work from UCD in the grazing scenario. So where they've fed field beans at lower inclusion levels and at lower feeding rates and very similar performance between the homegrown ingredients and imported soya. So just to take that with a word of caution that when we go full hog in a winter milk system, that's where we seem to lose performance. But in an industry perspective right now, it's unlikely to see that that type of reduction in performance. So the take home from that was these homegrown um, ingredients can really help our carbon footprint. Donald O'Brien would have shown that by the switches we've made, uh, we reduce the carbon footprint by 30% of the milk. It drives up our protein self-sufficiency, so it protects us from price volatility and disruptions. It helps our tillage sector, our, our, our friends friends in the tillage sector, so it's helping achieve those targets. And there's um, a lot of benefits to the likes of um, field beans in their rotations. But the, the word of caution is the reduced performance in those uh, winter milk systems. Yeah, yeah. But as you say, in terms of continued research, in terms of really um, no pressure, Mike, but your job now is to close that gap as such. Um, we've seen the importance of soy ultimately in that in that in that overwinter period. And it's about tweaking that and seeing is 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 there a way yeah. ultimately that 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 performance gap can be closed? Um, Definitely. Which, we, must, we must do bigger modeling as well, like LCA modeling and economics. And is the winter milk herd the right place to be putting the beans that we can grow? There's all those broader questions to go to target as well. So there's actually a good question in there. If the diet used the maximum of Irish cereals and beans, but topped up with some soya. Um, would you achieve performance benefits? So that's really that's really the point you were making there in terms of <clears throat> should there be an inclusion of beans and soya? Yeah, yeah. So very good question. And, and it'd be kind of a titration approach. Like we went one or the other. Could you go kind of in the middle? Um, I suppose from a research perspective, we wanted to push it to the extremes. And mm-hmm. then the other part is that when you really maximize the field beans, that's when you're getting your 30% reduction in carbon footprint. So if you pull back on the beans, you're going to pull back on those benefits as well in terms of carbon and, and environmental. But definitely, and that's what's happening in the industry at the moment, there's only a certain amount of beans grown in Ireland. And that doesn't, uh, we, you can't essentially have the full replacement that we researched at the moment. Um, those uh, growing targets are changing. There's more and more hectares coming to field beans. So it's about working together and figuring out where's the best place for, for, for those beans and how to include them in diets. Yeah, very, very good. And then the next stop, I suppose, and <clears throat> a bit that could be critical right across the industry and not only associated in terms of with winter milk, but the study was done over that winter milk period is, I suppose, um, reducing methane emissions. And, and doing that through um, the use of a of a of a feed additive. So, explain to us in terms of the study that was um, con- uh, that was trialed last winter in Johnstown Castle and the results that were presented on the day with regards to that, Mike. Yeah. So that last kind of um, technical research board was um, on on reducing methane production of winter milk cows. Uh, ben Lahart, research officer here in Chagas, uh, and myself presented uh, that board. So Ben would have opened up and kind of set the scene of, of where we're at with methane emissions and, and the need to reduce them. 
and he recovered some of the research done in Moorpark. So they've gone very hard after it the last few years here, looking at uh, making sure we have the correct baseline. So we're being fair to that cow, what she's actually emitting and, and making sure the inventories are, are set up correctly. Um, he will discuss um, some of the benefits of, of seasonality. So the reductions they're seeing when, when spring grass is in the diet and around the quality of that pasture as well. They're seeing that lower herbage um, swords can reduce uh, methane um, intensity. Um, he also discussed genetics, CBI, and, and the role that has in helping um, reduce our methane. And then finally, he touched on feed additives. So there's a broad array of feed additives. You'd all see it in the in the popular press and in the, in the media, um, and, and the, the potential um, promising solutions coming from there and the kind of criteria of what they have to meet to be able to be a, a successful solution. Um, so uh, I suppose the overall message for Benside was that there's a number of solutions available to us at the moment, not to focus on one or think there's a silver bullet. Um, but in terms of feed additives, we did go after a, a certain additive, which was tree and OP. Um, it's essentially an enzyme that uh, inhibits the, the final step of methane formation. Um, and there's very promising literature internationally in, in the indoor confinement system uh, in terms of its ability to reduce methane. So our challenge was to investigate that in an Irish context, in Irish winter milk cows, and see does it stand up to um, to the other international research. Um, they would have done some work here in Moorpark with the, with the Trino P. And they would have seen that um, it's difficult when the cows aren't getting a consistent supply of it throughout the day for the for the ingredient to have a, a benefit um, as, as much as seen in the literature. So in terms of the Irish winter milk cow, she's getting it in the feed barrier during that winter feeding period and she's consistently eating it across the day. So um, it was a very promising place to potentially use it. So we set up two two experimental diets. Uh, exactly the same in terms of grass silage, maize silage and concentrate inclusion levels. Uh, the only difference was that the control had no additive and then the additive diet had the Trino P included in it. Um, we fed 1.8 grams of Trino P per day and it was fed very practically. So Aidan and the team would have had a 10 kilo bucket of the of the ingredient and they would have hand mixed it into the loader bucket with the concentrate that was then added to the to the mixer wagon. So very practical and very um, uh, high ability to be able to be performed on farm. Um, so we ran that for seven weeks. Um, ben and, and Hazel Kostkin were, were, were huge in coming down and helping set up the green feeds and helping us run the experiment. Neil Maher was the PhD student running it. And of course, Aidan and his team couldn't have got it done without them. So we ran it for seven weeks. In terms of results, um, in terms of milk production, we saw a slight increase in milk yield um, and a slight increase in protein percent. So that delivered a slight increase in, in milk solids yield. So the control group with no tree and OP would have produced 2.45 kilos of milk solids over that seven-week indoor feeding period. And the additive cows would have produced 2.5 uh, kilos of milk solids. So a 2% increase in, in milk solids yield. And then the kind of really crucial ones, um, we looked at absolute methane, so the grams of methane per cow per day. The control cows produced uh, 447 grams, whereas the additive cows that received the tree and OP produced 330 grams per day. So that was a 26% reduction in absolute methane uh, per day. In terms of methane intensity, so the amount of methane per kilo of milk solids, uh, the control cows produced 182 grams of methane per kilo of milk solids, 
um, and the three NOP fed cows produced 132 grams. So that was a 27% reduction um, in methane intensity. So essentially, it stood up to the, the to the experiments. Uh, it did similar to what it has shown in international research. So I suppose the the really strong um, positive around that is now that we've proven it in an Irish scenario, and it can potentially be incorporated into the inventories and be used as a, as a solution for reducing agricultural methane production. So very promising in that sense. But I suppose going back to Ben's uh, initial board. Uh, it's important to state there's a number of solutions now available and uh, we need to utilize all of them. Uh, EBI and high quality pasture and mass maximizing grass in the diet are, are very positive in a number of senses, not only for, for methane uh, reduction. Um, feed additives will be a, a solution or a tool there. But of course, we must keep driving it on and, and find other solutions and have a wide array of tools to help uh, meet, meet our targets going forward. One question there, Mike, ultimately, I suppose, that that reduction that you would have seen in that period in terms of um, the methane reduction, where does that stack in terms of that international work? Um, you know, Is that similar? Did we see a, a greater response? Did we see less of a response? Where does that stand? Yeah, so we were roughly average, I suppose. When you look at meta-analyses, that's where they take all the experiments done so far. Uh, they'd be hitting around 30% on average, some slightly higher, some slightly less. And they've dug into why it has different responses uh, at times. And they have looked at things like NDF or fiber in the diet or the amount of fat in the diet, and, and that can affect it. So the more fiber, the more of a response, whereas the higher oil, the less of a response. Uh, so there's kind of mechanisms behind why there are certain uh, responses, but I suppose overall, very positive. We're in our round average. We're, we're achieving similar to other countries when, when they use the solution. Very good. Very good. <clears throat> and I suppose that led us on ultimately then to the last stop, Mike. Um not going to ask you to give the overview of this. <laughs> You're the man yeah. yeah. I was actually um, presenting it. So, <clears throat> myself, along with local dairy advisor Kay O'Connell, um, I suppose in terms of where we wanted to conclude from our technical boards, really was the whole area of of costs uh, associated with winter milk, and we all know costs across the board. Um, going from 2021 into 2022. And unfortunately, our analysis, Mike, would show that 2023 costs are going to remain very, very similar, um, both across manufacturing herds, but I suppose in the context of this uh, day, really across liquid milk herds. So we would have presented analysis there that would have showed in terms of the average cost of keeping the winter liquid milk cow in 2021 was €1,934. Euros. Um, and from our analysis, in terms of our e-profit monitor analysis, that actually rose to €2,397 Euros in 2022. So there was an increase of just over €460 Euros of additional costs inside one production year. Um, as I said, on the day, to a degree, obviously, in terms of... <clears throat> It's a significant issue in the in the fact that they remain sticky. But in 2022, 
Um, milk price and farm gate milk prices tracked that and even I suppose towards the end of the year actually um, the differential um, would have become greater but as we moved into 2023 um, farm gate milk prices have dropped off um, we all know where the situation is with regards to those at the moment and costs remain high which is a real concern so I suppose the main messages there Mike from ourselves ultimately was know your costs um, break even and, and full economic costs of, of, of mill production at farm level will be higher than just total variable and fixed costs. Um, ultimately, capital repayments, taxation and, and drawings have to be factored in at individual farm level. So the big one there is if you don't already know your costs of production, um, sit down, do your benchmark and analysis in terms of your e-profit monitor, have an understanding in terms of where your costs are at. A big one, and it often comes up in debate in industry in terms of we're in a higher cost system, obviously, in terms of we're producing more milk over that indoor house period. But that doesn't mean, and when we look at our analysis, it doesn't mean that we should forget about the overall cost of production. Because what we see is the winter milk and liquid milk farms that ultimately keep a handle on costs are the farms that consistently deliver margins, even in lower milk price, um, lower milk price years. So that's important. And that's really all, that's all related to the feed budget. Um, 49% of total costs is actually related to the feed budget, Mike. So it comes down to it actually comes straight back to the board, the second half of the the the, the board that Vincent presented really in terms of making sure that we're utilizing lots of forage, that it's high quality grass in those periods where we can, and then that it's high quality, high quality silage. One thing that does fit into that, I suppose, is stocking rate. Um, and sometimes this idea that we're, we're a liquid milk farm, liquid milk system, we can carry a higher stocking rate. If we're relying on, on excess imports of, of feed, um, the margins on that um, are on a reducing scale. So that's just something to remember. Yeah. So that was the first half, Mike, really. And, and yeah. for each individual, the messages there is is know your costs. Yeah. And Kay would have done a great job then on the second half and kind of to your points there, know your costs and control what you can and things like EBI, um, stale cows, getting a good calving interval. Um and then maximizing grass and, and high quality silage. So things yeah. that are controllable within the farm gate. Um, so she did a great job on that too, in fairness, and, and really tied the whole boards together and, and brought the messages forward. So, And you're right there, Mike, in terms of really, and that was the final point in terms of, we just had a quick look at where the average figures are at. And I suppose where we're really losing, and you alluded to us in terms of, is that fertility performance? Um, too many cows on farms in stale milk production. There's always the tendency in terms of, oh, well, sure, if she doesn't go in calf, we can move her to the next calving pattern. But that is a detrimental impact. And and Joe would have talked about that through the years. And it's it's obvious when you look at individual farm performance and right across groups here, calving intervals well above 400 days. So really the three focus areas that Kay would have spoke about was genetics, calving pattern and forage utilized. And if we got those three things right in terms of the correct genetics, high EBI genetics, high fertility subindex, milk subindex really driven off um, a high level of combined fat and protein rather than maybe excessive kilos of milk. And Aiden would have said 100 kilos, 120 kilos is kind of where his target is for, for kilos of milk, but it's plus 35 kilos of solids in terms of genetics he's looking for. 
Yeah. Then the, ca- the calving pattern stuff really is two defined blocks, have a start date and end date, and ultimately keep that recycled number of cows below 5%. So uh, in every 100 cows, there should be five golden tickets, as Kay spoke about. Um, we'll allow five favourites as such if we got it to that level. We'd love to see none. But in a lot of cases, we're seeing 15 18% recycled cows, um, which ultimately is really diluting performance and feed efficiency. Yeah. The last point of Kay's was that forage utilised point directly related to profitability no matter what system we look at and we actually done an interesting bit of work a few years ago where we actually looked at the relationship between forage utilized in winter systems and also in in uh, spring manufacturing systems and actually the correlation was nearly identical in terms of the correlation between it and profitability so it's as important in our winter systems um in terms of forage utilized yep. so those were the main points mike and <clears throat> i suppose the big one there is that that EBI works across all systems and we don't need a different type of cow and focus on the feed budget to increase margins, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then um, Miriam Gunn from Strokestown and Roscommon and Joe would have picked up the calving interval aspect again in the forum mm. then afterwards they did a real nice yeah. job and Miriam yeah. mentioned the, the golden tickets for the five of them and Joe would have elaborated on taking the emotion out of it if possible. Um, and try to maximize the lifetime productivity of those cows. Like you're saying, don't have them stale. So we, we consider her, she's still making 20, 25 kilos, but it's last opportunity when she could be back around as a fresh mm. cow again and up around 35, 40 potentially. So they did yeah. a great job there as well in the forum on that on that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the forum really tied it together because we did an opportunity in terms of hearing from Miriam, as you said, in terms of her own farming system, the changes that they've made in terms of genetics, improving the fertility performance, improving the components. And she, very clear in terms of her culling policy, the decision to cull cows isn't made at the end of the year. It's ultimately made throughout the year. And I think if, if, if people, if our listeners got anything from that is, Ultimately, if a cow, um, if the decision to cull a cow needs to be made, it actually should be made and recorded at that particular period rather than leaving the decision to a, a, the end of the year or whatever it is. Because what happens then, Mike, is the tendency is to resubmit her and breed her and away we go again type of thing. Yeah. So She mentioned using beef semen as well on certain cows. Make sure be very selective for those heifers coming coming in as a replacement. So Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And obviously then in, in, in terms of the forum, there, there would have been a conversation in terms of around nitrates, uh, the impact of nitrates, and um, that was well discussed and a lot of discussion around it. And I think the, the, the key point there ultimately is that decisions need to be made at an individual farm basis. Sit down, no more than your costs, know your figures and make the correct decision for your farm. Um, and that's going to be different for every farm ultimately. So really um, know your figures, make those decisions on an individual basis, have a, have a conversation with your advisor in terms of what's the best for your farm going forward. So overall, Mike, I think uh, a very positive day. Um, lots of tough dis- discussion and, and talking points along the way, but ultimately that's what the day is about. Um, an opportunity to see the research and also in terms of an opportunity, I suppose, to reiterate the basics and the basics ultimately to drive performance on across systems, not only winter milk systems. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. Um, so yeah. appreciate your time, Mike. 
My pleasure. Um, and before I run off, I just want to thank you too, James. You put a massive effort behind the scene there for that open day, and it's really appreciated. You drove around for the team and, and led us, which was which was great. Aiden and Ray Fox also a massive mm. effort. The place was looking smashing in, in fairness to them. Uh, cows were in great nick and 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 things were looking very well. And that's thanks to, to the farm staff too. Joe was heavily involved with us as well, not to be naming names. Um, and then everyone that helped in the lead up and on the day, it was really appreciated and, and couldn't do it without the, without the team effort. And, and it was brilliant. Nice to get more Park and Johnstone working together below there as well. So... It's, absolutely it's, it's, absolutely in terms of we had great collaboration across industry as well um, which is I suppose which is massive so come here Mike appreciate the time hopefully our listeners will have enjoyed that I think it's it's kind of a good snapshot in terms of what was discussed on the day farm safely folks and thanks for tuning in that's all for this week's bonus episode from the Let's Talk Dairy webinar series and don't forget to look out for more bonus episodes each week 